We'll be looking at chapter 26, paragraph 13 of our confession. And we'll also read from the start from Matthew chapter 18. I hope that this will be a very simple, a very basic teaching. but useful. I'll read first from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother... But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, once again we come into Your presence, thankful that we have Your Word Thankful that we can know your mind on matters with regard to your church. And so we ask that you teach us, Lord, very plainly and simply, what we all need to be reminded of, of how we ought to love one another and treat one another in the assembly. And I pray that you would use this, even something so basic for years to come, to remind us of our responsibility in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we considered, paragraph 12, what I entitled the liabilities of church membership. We saw that all Christians should aspire to be and and ultimately be members of a church. All members of each church are admitted to all of the privileges of church membership. And all members of a church are also liable to the government and discipline of the church. Now we're going to, moving forward, I'm going to take a little piece of that and we're going to bring it into this week, specifically that, that reference to discipline. If all members are liable to the discipline of the church, that results in a liability or a responsibility on both ends of the discipline. That would be the offending party and the offended Party, assuming that the situation is one where one person has sinned against or offended another, in in both situations, for both people, they have a responsibility and a liability in the context of the local church. In other words, to be a church member means that when you are the offended party, you are responsible. And and in a sense, we could say it liable to the process of discipline and restoration in the church. You you don't get to say, I've been offended and I'm out. No, if you're a church member, 
If you bring an offense, you have a responsibility then to stick in throughout the process and hang in there throughout the process until the matter is resolved. You see a little bit of this, a little extreme, I think, but even in, in uh, Israel, if you brought an offense, uh, especially a, uh, an offense worthy of the death penalty, that somebody had done something to you, who, who threw the first stone? Yeah, you had to do it. Now that, that changes things a lot when you realize I'm the one that's got to throw the first stone. If you uh, had a, a, an erring child, a son who was uh, rebellious, well, they brought him back to your house to be stoned. A, a daughter who was immoral, she was taken back to daddy's house. And that, that is where the, uh, the, the offense or the, uh, the penalty was carried out. So we see here, we, we, when we are offended, if somebody has sinned against us, if we're going to, to use our modern vernacular, if we're going to make something of it, we have then uh, um, committed ourselves to the whole process, we could say. And I've called this paragraph the limitations of church membership. And by that I mean that being a church member limits the way in which you can personally respond to offenses given by other members. Our own church covenant states this. Everybody who's a member has signed a covenant that says, We engage to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We acknowledge that implicit within this covenant is the consent to be governed by the Word of God in peacemaking and reconciliation, accountability, and church discipline. So this paragraph that we're about to look at really just gives sort of a, a confessional background or foundation for that statement in our church covenant. Being a church member limits the way I can respond to what the Scripture says I have to do. And there's a liability to submit to the process as laid out in Scripture. Now, somebody who's not a member, hopefully if they're a believer, they would still conform to Scripture. They would submit to what Scripture teaches. But as a congregation, if a person says, I've been offended by a church member here, but I'm not a member, and I'm leaving, well, as a church, there's really nothing we can do. We say, well, we wish you wouldn't, but farewell. But if somebody is a member of the church and they are offended and then they say, well, I think I'm just, I'm just out. Well, at that point, the church has an obligation to then bring in uh, discipline, if need be, on that person because they have broken their covenant. So the paragraph reads this way. No church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. The first thing that I want to point out here is the reality of offenses in the church. We can draw this from that phrase, no church members upon any offense taken by them. Church members can expect that at some point in their lives, somebody else in the church might do something that offends them. 
It's a reality. There will probably arise some scenario in which you do something to offend somebody else or somebody else does something to offend you and that's going to create what we would call a dispute between the two. If we want to consider this, this scene, want to try to imagine this, I think the best way to imagine it is in the first person. In this situation, let's, let's imagine that you are the offended party or I am the offended party. Somebody has done something to offend you. What will you do in that situation? What's expected? And again, we start by recognizing that you might actually find yourself in this situation. I know we like to think we're all Christians here. We're all brothers and sisters. Nobody in the room would ever do anything to offend me. But realistically speaking, it could happen. Why is that? Well, the Scriptures are pretty clear that such disputes, disagreements, and offenses are common among men, even among the saints, because, number one, all men are sinners. The Scriptures teach in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that doesn't change just because we come into the church uh, community or, or even because we're regenerated. That doesn't cease our capability to sin. Yes, our sins are pardoned through the blood of Jesus. But the, the reality of the ongoing need for the help of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing intercession of Christ is evidence that we're not perfected yet. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. But all we have to do is turn to the pages of Scripture to see that this is something that can be expected. The Word of God is not ignorant to, but very honest with the reality that even among the people of God, there are disagreements, disputes, offenses, and hurts. Christ taught in Matthew 5, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What is this assuming? This is assuming that there might be times when your brother has something against you. You've done something to him, he's something, done something to you. When the disciples heard that James and John's mother was asking that they be promoted, it says when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They got mad. This is amongst the, the apostles of Christ. In Mark chapter 9, it says when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Again, the disciples of Christ. We know well the famous disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 15, it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. In Galatians 2.11, when Peter was being hypocritical, Paul says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And Peter himself asks in Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seven times seven, or, or basically you just keep on forgiving. There's no end to the amount of times that we ought to forgive a brother who sins against us. What does all this assume? Even amongst Christians, 
There are disagreements. There are disputes. There are offenses. You're going to offend somebody. Somebody's going to offend you. In being consistently, covenantally, physically bound to a group of sons and daughters of Adam, we better not be surprised that somebody's going to get offended at some point. Now, we do also need to be able to discern the difference between legitimate offenses and petty, prideful offenses that we take at things when we shouldn't really be offended. Oftentimes we get offended, and really the only offense is that we have taken something personally that we should not have taken so personally. We, we should have been mature enough to ignore it and move on quickly. It's not a legitimate offense. You made it offense by being so easily offended or offendable. So there is a difference between legitimate offenses, that is a sin against us, and an innocent act that we take offense at. The issue here in our confession is that of an actual legitimate offense in which a person in the congregation has legitimately sinned against you and you, are, you have been offended. Again, the, being offended is another one of those words that our culture has kind of robbed and they just abuse. I, I'm offended about this or that. Um, this is talking about a legitimate sin against a brother or sister. And it's likely to occur at some point in many churches. So we see the reality of offenses in the church. Secondly, we see the duty of the offended in the church. If we're thinking of this from the first person perspective, all of us could say in this scenario, I'm the offended party. What, what, are, what is the duty? What are the obligations laid at your feet? There are some sins that can be covered with love. I don't believe that every legitimate sin has to be brought to attention and allowed to, to stir into a, a dispute. There are some things that we can just say, it was a sin, but I'm just going to let it go and just move on. But there are some sins that must be addressed. And this is one of the obligations of church membership. This is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sins. Very often is when a brother or sister comes to us and says, Hey, you sinned against me. You, you said this or that or you implied this or that or whatever. But we do have duties. The first duty is assumed in this paragraph. The first confrontation expected. We see that in the words, Having performed their duty required of them towards the person that they are offended at. You see, the, the, the verbiage, having performed, assumes that they've already, in the past, covered the most basic steps and obligations laid at their feet that we see in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then in verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others and then tell it to the church. Verse 17, th those are... Those are your responsibilities that are laid before you. But the very first step and most basic step is usually where most of these types of things would be resolved. Go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is you go to him or her and you tell him or her their fault between you and him or her alone. You, the offended party, go to the offending party, the offender, 
and you tell them the fault between you and him alone. You say, why are, why are you belaboring that point? Because it, it, it's almost without question that somebody usually feels the need to seek wise counsel. They, they want to ask somebody, a pastor or an elder, so-and-so has done this to me, and I just wanted to get your counsel. What do you think I should do? Well, my counsel, now and forever, is go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You, you've already bypassed that step once you've come to me, once you've gone to somebody else. You go and tell him his fault. You, the offended, go to him or her, the offender, and tell them the fault. I promise, I promise that if that step is taken seriously and acted upon in this way, that will cease almost all disputes and arguments and offenses just like that. Because here's what's going to happen. Number one, you're going to say, it's not even that big of a deal. I don't want to go to them. I'm just going to drop it. Good. Problem solved. Forgive and move on. Or you go to them and have a, a grown-up conversation and the matter's solved. You're right, I sinned against you. I'm sorry, I apologize. Will you forgive me? Yes, I'll forgive you. It's done. The way that it blows up and goes beyond that is when we need counsel. I need, I'm going to get counsel from so-and-so. Well, in the multitude of counselors, maybe I should call three or four more. So-and-so has offended me. What, what do you all think I should do? If you come to me, my answer is going to be, Go to them and tell them, or I'm going to take you to them. You, you've already overstepped the bounds. Go to them. No one, not even the elders, needs to know about the matter until these first steps are covered. And the confession assumes that there is sufficient clarity in the words of Jesus in this section that we don't have to write. There's not an additional paragraph, 12.5, that says, let's explain the first steps. No, it says it very clearly. Go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen, take another. If he doesn't listen, tell it to the church. It's really very simple. But once you've done all of that, that's where it kind of picks up. Once that those first steps are completed, there are other duties or obligations that the offended party has, and they're given first negatively. In other words, here's what you don't do in this situation. I've gone to them. They didn't listen. I took two or one or two others. They didn't listen. I told it to the church. They're still not listening. Okay, here's what you don't do. First, you may not disturb church order with your offense. The confession says, No church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them toward the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order. That is, you may not interrupt the normal proceedings of the worship services or other assemblies with your offense. And, and, and pretend that you're just astonished that we would even continue as a church. How can, how can things just keep going when I'm over here offended? No, you can't do that. You can't interrupt things. Just let things continue. The second one is you may not absent yourself from assemblies. These no church members upon this offense, once they've carried out their first steps, ought to absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members. In many cases, especially if they are legitimate sins, they're going to be truly hurtful. That's, that's possible. And what we often think is the very best thing we could do is just stay home. 
I, I just won't go. I'll stay home. I'll, I'll help everybody out. I'll keep, uh, keep the peace. I don't want to make it awkward, so I'll just stay home. You, you avoid the church altogether. And some have thought that this is a legitimate inference from what Jesus says in Matthew 5. If you're going to offer your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, go and leave your gift at the altar, go and tell him and reconcile, then come and offer your gift. They, they infer from that, that's a command, but they infer from that, well, what he must be implying is that no legitimate worship can take place as long as there are un, uh, unresolved sins or irreconciled sins. Therefore, I might as well just stay home. Anything I would try to do would just be heaping upon heaping blasphemy upon the worship, and I don't want to do that, so I'll just stay home until the matter is resolved. They assume that true worship cannot happen when there are unresolved sins. Here's a little secret for us all. You have unresolved sins. We all have them. That's what we talked about this morning, right? God doesn't say, now get everything resolved and cleared up. Then you can come worship. He sent His Son to get everything resolved and cleared up so that we can come worship. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore sins. We need to be dealing with sins. But God doesn't say, until you get everything reconciled, don't even attempt to worship. So don't absent yourself. Don't stay home. Another way to look at this, why, why can't members absent themselves from the assembly? Well, because you have covenantal obligations as a church member. You have biblical responsibilities, like we talked about last week, as a part of the body. That if you stay home, you are neglecting those things God has given you to do. You don't fix sin by multiplying sins. You, don't, you can never sprinkle a few more sins on a sin to make it less sinful. We don't do that. So don't absent yourself from the assemblies or the ordinances. Stated positively, then we could say that the duties of the offended party are first the opposite of those things just prohibited. So if the confession is saying, don't disturb church order, then we can assume what you should do is just carry on with church order. If the confession is saying, don't absent yourself from the assemblies, well, then we can assume that what you ought to do is just go to church like normal. Continue on. But in addition to that, the confession says that they are to wait upon Christ. To wait upon Christ. Oftentimes, the most difficult thing that we do as believers is wait upon Christ. And there are many voices in our day who would accuse those who wait upon the Lord as being either pietists, people who think they're so holy that it shouldn't be involved in worldly things, or quietists, people who think that their responsibility is literally just sitting still and let, letting go and letting God. I read a quote this week that says, Patience is not quietism. It is a mode of action necessary for playing the long game in the face of opposition, for accomplishing something of more than ephemeral significance. That means very brief and of the moment. See, most people are very active. And the things that they accomplish last about two weeks. And they, they're not thinking long term. He says, Patience is also a virtue utterly appropriate to a world in which the Lord reigns. And we could say the same thing about this when we have been offended. 
To wait upon the Lord is not to do nothing. To wait upon the Lord is not saying, well, I'm, I'm so holy that no offenses ever actually offend me. There is a, a true sense in which waiting upon the Lord is necessary. And the Scriptures certainly don't consider waiting upon the Lord as doing nothing. Imagine that you've been truly sinned against. Do we know anybody in the Scriptures who was repeatedly sinned against? Psalm 25.3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, we might not say the brother or sister in the congregation who has offended us is wantonly treacherous, but we could just slide in there. Those who are have offended me. Psalm 25, 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. In other words, I'm, he, he says, I'm, I'm just consigning myself into the hands of the Lord in this matter. Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. When we have been offended and we've done the things that have been given to us to do, it is okay to wait for the Lord or to wait upon Christ. His eye does not pass over a single wrong done to any one of His children, even those done by others of His children. I thought about this illustration. Parents, you might recognize this if you go to a park or somewhere where your children are interacting with other children who are strangers to you. They're not raised in your home. They typically don't have the rules that you have. They might not even have the, the kindness that we try to instill in our children. And you might see a stranger do something wrong to one of your children. Now, you don't like that, but you don't go and start talking to their parents and talking to them. Usually, you just say, it'll be okay. We're going to be gone in a little bit. We'll probably never see these people again. It's no big deal. But... <coughs> When it's in your own home and one of your children is the offender and one of your children is the offended, you're a lot quicker to act. I have to resolve this matter because this is an in-house dispute, an offense that needs to be handled. Now, if we would do that, how much more does our Heavenly Father look upon the offenses and things between His own children and... How much more ought we to expect Him to act to see the matter resolved? He wants us to get along. I know that does seem very simple, but He wants us to get along. Notice how this waiting happens. It says, We are to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. So our waiting upon Christ happens precisely as we surrender to the proceedings of the church. So I've gone. They didn't listen. I've taken one or two others. They didn't listen. I've told it to the church. Now the church, however this plays out, whether it's a majority of the church members, whether it's the men going, whether it's the elders under the authority of the church going, the church is now taking over. And when we submit to that process and we say, it's out of my hands at this point, we are in that act waiting upon Christ. And this is, I think, the implication of Matthew chapter 18. When we get to the end and we find out Christ is there when His people gather in these types of situations. There is a process ordained of God, ordered by Christ Himself, 
so that when the church gets involved, Christ Himself is involved. So as we wait upon the church and its proceedings, that is waiting upon Christ. It's waiting for the God-ordained strategy to take effect. The assumption here is that having performed the duty required of them toward the person they are offended at, once you've done all that you can do, that's all that you're required to do. And you just have to let it go. You have delivered the matter to the God-ordained authority and you can rest in that. Now, Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said... Let's see. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The law of God did say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If if you've read it, you know the section. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, skin for skin. I forget it. It goes on down the list uh, of things. Basically, justice is to be uh, served in in a way that is appropriate to the offense. But remember, that commandment was given to be administered by the, the, what we would call the magistrates of Israel, not just the individuals. Somebody pokes you in the eye, you don't have the authority to just poke them right back. Eye for an eye, that's what the law says. And that's what Jesus is, is dealing with here. You, you can't take the law into your own hands. When it comes into your court, what do you do? They slap you, you just turn to them the other cheek. They want to take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. You have to surrender to the, 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 the reality that there are magisterial structures in place that deal with those sort of things. And we don't have the authority to just take these matters into our own hands. That's, that's what he was dealing with there. That principle is here being applied in the church. That, that, the general equity of that law comes down not only to the the realm of the the civil magistrate where we can't take the law into our own hands, but also in the church. The individual member has several things that he or she can do and then after that they must consign the matter over to the the church, the authority. We might call it the ecclesiastical magistrate if that's how you want to think of it. You hand it to them and say, I'm going to let you deal with it. This This is being applied in the church. Individual members don't have the authority to take matters into their own hands. These offenses are to be taken to the church and dealt with there. And when you give that over, you're saying, Christ, I'm handing it to you. And you let it go. It'll be taken care of. Now the final reference in in the confession is Ephesians 1. Let's let's turn there and we'll look at this passage and we'll we'll be finished here. Ephesians chapter, I said 1, it's chapter 4, verse, beginning at verse 1. This, this portion, the reason I believe it's referenced is because this lays out the general attitude that we ought to have toward one another. And if by the power of the Spirit we, we live out this pattern 
then all of the things in this paragraph will be simple. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As an aside, this morning we referenced Ephesians 3. Paul prays that they would know the love of Christ. What is the conclusion? When you know the love of Christ, you respond in love. And when you love Him, you keep His commandments. What are His commandments when it comes to one another? They would be all, all, all of them would be fulfilled in love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He goes straight into that in chapter 4. I'm, gonna, I'm urging you to live in light of that. And he, this, is, this is relational. He urges the saints to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they'd been called. Now, we might have very high and extravagant ideas of what it might look like to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. I think the, the calling here is the gracious and effectual call of Almighty God, which raised us from deadness in our sins and brought us immediately to life through union with His Son by the regenerating and indwelling Holy Spirit, a work that was earned for us by the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's the call. Now he says, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of that. Now when we think of that, what comes to our mind? What, what could we possibly do to live a life worthy of this calling? Surely it would have to be some great, heroic, maybe even life-threatening missionary journey, right? Or maybe, maybe it would be going out and conquering kingdoms and empires and bringing them under Christ. That would be something surely worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But what Paul goes on to describe here is a life of regular, loving devotion to the people that you go to church with. That's what he describes. Here's how you live a life worthy of the calling. To sum it all up, love one another. And I think it would be interesting to lay out what is stated here using the categories or, or maybe use these categories and lay out 1 Corinthians 13 when it talks about love. It, they would be parallel passages. We are to live with one another with all humility. That is, with lowliness of mind. Most petty offenses come from thinking of ourselves too highly. We attach personal significance to things that we shouldn't. And so we take offense. So-and-so didn't eat my chicken casserole. I've been watching three weeks in a row now, and he hadn't eaten my chicken casserole. Okay? What have you done? You've, 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 you've located your identity in your chicken casserole. And, and so when somebody doesn't touch it or, you know, it's not all eaten or whatever, you're offended. Like they did something to you. Maybe they, did, they don't, just don't want chicken casserole. But you take it personally. You see, that's what happens. We, we insert personal significance into things. Or we expect that we should be regarded highly by somebody in some way that nobody knows but ourselves. We have, we've created it in our minds. This is what it looks like for me to be treated the way I think I should be treated. Nobody knows it, and therefore when nobody does it, we get offended. 
It's because you're thinking too highly of yourself. Paul goes on to say later on in Ephesians that if we're filled with the Spirit, we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll come beneath others. Not, not demanding that people you know, look up to us and revere us and regard us, but we'll, we'll work hard to look up to them, regard them. Our Lord said in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. We are to follow His example. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. You don't like my chicken casserole? Well, next week I'm going to bring three more. I'm going to make, I'm going to make extra. I'm going to make, I'm going to make a bowl and send it home with you. Just serve one another. Why, what if it gets thrown in the trash? Who cares? Right? It doesn't matter. You serve. That's, how we, that's the attitude we ought to have. We're commanded, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our pattern of humility. Humbling ourselves before others. Considering others better than ourselves. We should walk before one another in humility and then offenses will be handled rightly. As a matter of fact, you'll probably never be offended again when you humble yourself before other people. The next trait is gentleness or, or meekness. A confident submission to the providence of God and trust that He will vindicate His people in every instance as He sees fit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We see in Galatians 5. And the pattern is Christ again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. A trait worthy to be leveraged to plead with the Corinthians. We see meekness epitomized in Jesus Christ who could have called down twelve legions of angels to defend him, but rather allowed the soldier to call a mortal man to help him carry his own cross. Why could he do that? Why could he submit to that providence? Why could he, he entrust himself into the hands of him who judges justly? Because he knew that his father would vindicate him in due time. He knew that it wasn't his place at that point to, to triumph. That it, his aim was to suffer. And that should be our attitudes. We, we should not rise up in prideful self-defense. We should be able to entrust ourselves in all providences to God and say, the Lord will take care of it. My name has been ran through the mud. Number one, what is your name? And number two, the Lord will vindicate. The Lord will, will see to these things. We don't have to rise up to defend ourselves in these matters. Then there's patience or long-suffering, another fruit of the Spirit. Remember Christ said, Suffer the little children to come to me. That, the, the word means to permit or allow. 
So long-suffering would be an extended period of allowing or permitting circumstances to continue without complaining and without trying to jump in to make them stop. You just allow it. You, you permit it to continue. If we've not been vindicated yet and we feel we're being treated poorly, then we ought to be able to allow that and permit that without complaining, trusting again that the Lord will do what's right in His time. Then there's bearing with one another in love. Jesus uses the word for bearing here in Matthew 17 when He said, How long am I to bear with you? We might say, put up with. Putting up with one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another. Another word that's been stolen and abused in our culture. It doesn't change the biblical expectation that amongst the people of God, we are expected to bear up, to endure, to tolerate the failings of brothers and sisters. We're commanded to tolerate weaknesses and ignorances and immaturities of others. We, we bear it up with them. And we bear up them in that. Everything is not the end of the world. Now, if you're the kind of person who lives your whole life like a camel with all of the straw to break the back, less, less one straw, less one, what, what, what is it, a straw of straw? Less one. Then yeah, the first thing that happens is the end of the world. Every time. It's always the end of the world. If that's the kind of person that you are. We shouldn't be that kind of people. That, that shouldn't be Christians. We can't be that way. And we're willing to do these things because we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Nasby translates that phrase, diligent to preserve. It, 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 the picture is, we are eager to work hard to guard and protect the unity of the church. That's the, the picture. You go out of your way to keep the peace. That's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8. to Remember, they had grievances against one another. They were taking one another to court. Paul says, what's going on? Surely there's somebody in the church that can handle these little things. But then he goes on to say, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Why not rather suffer wrong? For some of us, to suffer wrong, is, is, it, it, it might be the one thing we won't do. I'm not going to allow a wrong to be done to me. Paul says, for the sake of the unity of the church, you should just suffer it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he seems to indicate that it's actually preferred that we suffer wrong and be defrauded rather than continue the strife amongst church members. They're doing me wrong, and I'm just going to let them keep doing it. I'm not going to make this, I'm not going to let this blow up as long as you can. You just let it go. Well, but they did, just let it go, right? But she said, just let it go. Well, but he won't just let it go. Love them as Christ has loved you. 
So what is the limitation of church membership? No member is allowed to disrupt normal church functions or dismiss themselves because they've been offended by a brother. That's the way the world works. Not, not the church. The world is petty. The world gets offended. The world says, so I'll just stay home. I'm, I'm just not going to talk to them. I'm just going to ignore them. That's the way people of the world act. Not, not Christians. Christians don't do that. Rather, we are to submit to one another, serve one another, tolerate one another, suffer long with one another, go out of our way even to our hurt in order to preserve the unity of the church. Being offended is never an excuse for disorder or disunity. And so with that, I'll, I'll close with these, the words of Christ. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray.